Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, True Crime Army. I am your host, Marco, and this podcast is about military murder. It's not for the faint of heart, so listener beware. Today's case has been requested by anyone familiar with military murder, especially the Spouses Club out of Hale Air Force Base. Props to my faithful listeners out of Utah. This one is for you. Join me today as I tell you a story that appears to be ripped out of a horror movie, but it's not. It's real life. It's the story of the Hi-Fi Murders. Now, let's dig in. My main source for this episode is a book titled Victim, The Other Side of Murder by Gary Kinder. Other sources include a court decision from the Utah Supreme Court, a court decision from a Utah federal court, and articles by the New York Times and the Standard Examiner. It's 1974 in Ogden, Utah. Ogden is about 40 miles north of Salt Lake City. It's Monday, April 22nd, 1974, about 6 p.m., and Carol Nesbitt was home. She had just put dinner on the table for her husband and two of her sons. Byron Nesbitt was Carol's husband, and he was a local obstetrician. He had practically delivered every baby in town for the last couple of years or so, but he was still at work at this time. The Nesbitt's oldest son, 29-year-old Gary, was at the house, though. He swung by his parents' house, even though he had just spent the entire weekend with them, welcoming them back from a 14-day trip to China. But, you know, he was hungry and he was sure that his mom made enough that he could join them for dinner. So he thought, what the heck, let me swing by and see my parents. Gary was married, but recently separated, so he had plenty of time on his hands. While at the house, Gary wondered if his parents had picked up their vacation pictures from Inkley's. Inkley's, I'm imagining, is like a local picture developing shop. Carol said no, but you know what? She had an idea. Her youngest son, 16-year-old Courtney, was on his way home from his flight lesson. Why not try to catch him before he left the airport to see if he could swing by the shop to grab the pictures? Gary, never opposed to bossing his little brother around, called Courtney at the airport where he had just flown solo for the first time. Gary tasked Courtney and Courtney was not too keen on the idea. He had just come off an intense adrenaline rush and he wanted to go home. He wanted to eat. And in fact, he had an aeronautical ground school class at 7 p.m. But Gary begged, please, 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 come on, man. It will only take a few minutes, tops, and it's on the way home. Courtney said fine, but before he hung up, Gary gave Courtney specific parking instructions. Either park behind the bank and get your parking ticket validated, or, you know, you can always park behind our cousin's entertainment shop, the Hi-Fi, where, you know, parking is free, no hassle. After the instructions, Courtney hung up. What happened to the Nesbitt family next would prove that one small errand can change the entire course of a family's life forever. Thirty minutes after being tasked with picking up the pictures, Courtney was still not home. So Carol, never one to let food go to waste, grabbed the dinner from the table and put it up. Although she did wonder what was taking Courtney so long to get home with the pictures. Just then, the door swung open and in walked Byron, 
the dad. Bai, as he was known, had just arrived home from a shift at the hospital. Imagine being a doctor, being on your feet all day long and just getting home and all you want to do is plop down on your favorite chair. This is what I imagine that Byron wanted to do and in fact probably did. Also, Byron was the on-call doctor, so he needed to rest up because you never know when those babies want to make their grand entry into this world. Byron greeted the family and scanned the room and asked out loud about Courtney. Now, this triggered Carol to tell Byron that she thought it odd that Courtney was not home yet, and she was kind of worried. Byron, the less worrier of the couple, was like, come on, Carol, according to your story, he's only been gone about a half hour. What's the big deal? He'll show up. Now, Byron had nicknamed Carol Shorty, and as he chatted with her, calling her Shorty, he kind of gave her a playful little hug. But Carol, the worried mom, was not in a playful mood. Then they all sat down to eat. The guys chatted, but Carol couldn't get into the discussion. The nagging feeling as every passing minute went by without the front door swinging open and her youngest son walking through the door, that nagging feeling just kept bugging her. She just felt that something had to be wrong. Byron knew that Carol was annoyed. Maybe maybe it was her body language or maybe it was her awkward silence. So he asked Gary, go ahead and tell me exactly what your conversation was with Courtney. Upon hearing the story again, you know, the phone call, the task, the parking instructions, Carol, never the one to miss a small detail, reminded the men that the hi-fi shop closed at 6 p.m. So there was no way that Courtney would have gotten caught up there chatting with any of the employees. Because this was Gary's theory. Gary's theory was, mom, he's fine. He just got caught up chatting. Clearly, the men could not convince Carol that Courtney was just a teenager and teenagers sometimes get caught up and sometimes they forget to call their moms. So they left the dining room area thinking that mom was just overreacting like always. Carol just cleaned up the dishes and I imagine that she was loudly clinking and clanking to ensure that the entire house knew just how pissed off she was while she stewed over how nonchalant the men were about her missing baby. Albeit, Courtney was not a baby, but all mamas know that your kids will always be your babies. Gary and Byron continued chit-chatting when all of a sudden they heard the back door open and slam and the car start as Carol left the house alone. Now it was about 7 p.m. and she was going to go look for Courtney. Carol went to the college, Webster State College, where Courtney was supposed to have that 7 p.m. class I told you about earlier. Carol went to the class. She peeked in. She didn't see him. She didn't see his car in the parking lot and she was stumped. So then she got back in her car and she went home. When she arrived, she ignored her husband and her other son. She was pissed. Carol called a few of Courtney's friends, but they hadn't seen him that afternoon. Carol then went to where the two Nesbitt men sat and yelled, is no one else concerned? Something has happened to Courtney. And then she barged out of the house with her keys as her car screeched away from the house. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. 
My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. Courtney loved airplanes, everything about them. At 16 years old, he was taking flying lessons at the local Ogden Municipal Airport. And on April 22nd, 1974, his teacher, Wolfgang Lang, was confident enough in Courtney's ability that he allowed him to fly the red and white Cessna 150 Skyhawk solo. This was a huge accomplishment for a 16-year-old, especially a 16-year-old who had been obsessed with airplanes from the age of five. After the lesson, Courtney headed to downtown Ogden to pick up the vacation pictures from Inkley's. He wasn't quite sure where to park, so he figured, hey, you know what, let's park behind the hi-fi shop. Everything's going to be fine. The hi-fi shop was like the 70s version of a radio shack or maybe like a Best Buy. At least that's my description of it. They sold all things audio equipment. On his way to Inkley's, Courtney bumped into an old neighborhood friend named Cora. Now, she went with him to pick up the pictures, and then he said, hey, if you want, you can just come with me to the hi-fi shop. Now, Cora had a crush on the hi-fi shop owner, Brent Richardson, who, by the way, was Courtney's cousin. And so Cora was like, yeah, sure, I'll come with you. And the two just kind of walked to the hi-fi shop. As they arrived, Cora was probably a little bit blushing, and she asked if Brent was inside. Now, Courtney had to break it to her. Unfortunately, Brent was actually away on a one-day business trip. So at that point, Cora looked at her watch and realized, oh crap, she was already late. She told her mom that she was going to be home by six and so she needed to leave and she left. Courtney was also in a hurry, so he walked inside the hi-fi shop quickly just to say thanks for the parking spot, never stopping to realize how quiet the place was and how no one was present in the front of the shop. 16-year-old Courtney did what any of us would have done in that situation and he just beep-bopped along. Courtney did see an employee named Stanley Walker and Stan was standing in the back room, almost against the wall. Courtney thanked Stan for letting him park in the back as he reached through the door that led to the back alley. When all of a sudden Stan yelled, stop Courtney, he's going to shoot you. Court was in a rush so he didn't quite grasp the statement when all of a sudden a different male voice said, quote, take another step and I'll pull a bullet in your head, end quote. Court instinctively dropped the pictures as he saw the gun and raised his hands as he saw a tall man holding a gun towards his face. Dang, Court said out loud, had you not said anything, I wouldn't even have seen the gun. 
Courtney was then pushed or kicked down a set of stairs that led into the hi-fi shop basement. As Courtney tumbled, he was kicked, punched, and kneed all over the body. Courtney landed on the carpet at the bottom of the basement. The basement wasn't very large. Gary Kinder said it was designed to resemble a den, about 14 square feet large. Courtney was internally freaking the hell out. He was only 16 years old, for goodness sake. When Courtney looked up, he saw a short man in the basement. So remember, man upstairs, tall, man in the basement, short. The short man had a large head and tiny, beady-looking eyes. The short man then yanked at Courtney's hands, pulling them behind Courtney's back and tied them together, followed by binding his feet. By this point, 20-year-old Stan, the guy who was running the hi-fi shop at the time, he was now in the basement and tied up as well. But it wasn't just Stan and Courtney and the two perpetrators. 19-year-old Michelle, born Sherry Michelle Ansley, was a new hi-fi employee. She had been there about a week and she was a tiny little thing, about five feet tall, and she was engaged to be married. The wedding date had been set at August 5th, 1974. She was working on the night of April 22nd and sadly, she was laying tied on the floor right next to Stan. The tall perpetrator was now in the basement as well and Courtney saw that he was carrying a 38 revolver in his hand. Courtney, Stan, and Michelle just lay there in the crammed basement surrounded by high-value audio equipment and boxes. One of the perpetrators threatened to shoot all three of them if they didn't listen to them. Then, one man guarded the victims and the other man and maybe another person or two were upstairs raiding the store. They were there to steal the equipment after all. While this was going on upstairs, Stan and Courtney begged the guard to let them go. Stan was trying to talk some sense into the guy, like, dude, take whatever you want, but please, please don't hurt us and please let us go. An hour passed and the three just lay there on the basement floor. And then another hour went by. By now, it was 8 p.m., over 90 minutes since Carol had been awaiting Courtney's return home. And now he was an hour late to his ground school class, which he was never late for because Courtney was serious about getting his pilot license. Michelle's family was also worried sick and Stan's dad was sitting at home wondering about his son. By this point, the perpetrators, however many there were, had pulled up some cars or some vans or something to the back door of the hi-fi shop. The three victims in the basement could hear the commotion and then the tall man and the short man came rushing downstairs. Then it was silent for a bit when all of a sudden the back door of the hi-fi shop swung open. The entire place lay quiet, perpetrators and victims. The door closed and the footsteps walked into the shop, further into the store, as if they were looking for something. But everything was silent. The person looked around and then headed back towards the back door. When they saw the stairs to the basement and the person walked over. Just then, the short man, by this point at the top of the stairs, pointed his gun at the new person in the shop and the tall man shouted, what are you doing here, man? No response. Then a person was led to the bottom of the stairs to join the three victims. Stan looked up to see it was his dad, 43-year-old Orrin Walker. Crap, Stan thought. Then gunshots rang in the basement. Everyone was disoriented as Michelle yelled, I'm just 19, I don't want to die. And Courtney followed with a cry of, I'm too young to die. 
Stan just yelled, take the stuff and go, take the stuff and go. And Oren agreed with his son telling the perpetrators, hey, just we're, we, we won't even be able to identify you. Just take whatever you want and leave. You don't even have to be afraid. We will not report you. Now, while the four people begged for their lives, the two perpetrators huddled in a corner, seemingly arguing over something. Maybe the tall man was trying to figure out why the short one shot the gun, although it appeared that the gunshots were just warning shots because no one was harmed. There was somewhat of a commotion and then it was calm again. The short man left the basement for a short moment and returned. It was time to execute the short man's plan. The tall man appeared to be somewhat following the short man's orders. Get the bottle, the short man said. At this point, the three youngins lay on the floor. Oren was standing in the middle of the room as the tall man held him at gunpoint while also holding a large container wrapped in a brown paper bag. The short man was now carrying a green plastic cup. The two men then poured the liquid into the cup. Everyone was curious about the content in the cup and they were asking like, what is that? And the tall man said it was a mixture of vodka and a German drug. The man said it's a sleeping aid so that you guys can all just pass out. Meanwhile, the short man just kind of giggled. The perps gave the cup to Oren and told him to give the liquid to Michelle, Stan, and Courtney. Oren refused, turning his face, even though there was a gun to his head. The short man was getting agitated with Oren, so he set the cup down and tied Oren's hands behind his back because at this point he had just been standing there and hadn't been tied up. Now, all four were laying on the ground as the two perpetrators went off into a corner and whispered frantically. The tall man was saying that he was chicken and he couldn't go through with the plan. Just then, they heard the hi-fi shop back door swing open and everything in the shop went silent again. The tall man had tiptoed quite quickly to the top of the stairs carrying the gun when all of a sudden he pointed the gun at the person who had just walked in as he asked, what are you doing here, man? I'm checking on my son. What's going on here? Carol asked. At the bottom of the stairs, Courtney recognized the voice as clear as day. It was his mom. His heart sank into his stomach as Carol was forced into the basement with the rest of them. But before heading down, one of the men locked the back door of the hi-fi shop. At this point, even though they started the night out with two people tied up in the basement, now they had five. Carol was laid right next to her son, where she was also tied up. Carol laid there looking at the back of her son's head. Then the short man announced, we're having a little cocktail party. Carol, the smart mouth mama, was like, mm, nah, I'll pass. I don't drink. But the short man wasn't taking any nonsense. So he started with Carol. Carol didn't want to open her mouth, but eventually she did as she was forced to swallow the liquid. But as soon as the liquid hit the back of her throat, Carol began to gag, cough, and spit all at once. Then the men did this to each and every other victim in the basement. The liquid had some fumes which burned the nostrils as it was held up to the victim's mouths. And the liquid was actually burning the victim's esophagus as the liquid poured down their throats and burned into their chest and stomachs. Courtney vomited after he had his share of the liquid fire. As the victims drank the liquid, it not only burned their insides, but as they spit whatever they could out, the liquid burned their faces, their chins, their lips, and other body parts that came into contact with this liquid. The last victim to take the liquid was Oren, but he had been hearing and seeing the reactions of the others, 
So when it was his turn, he took the liquid and pretended to swallow when in fact he actually spit it out, like letting it ooze out the side of his mouth. Oren recognized the smell of the liquid as something like hydrochloric acid. The perpetrators then went back for round two, this time attempting to keep the victims from spitting it out by taping their mouths immediately after pouring the liquid. But the victims' faces were so badly burned and oozy that the tape would not stick. By this point, it was 9 p.m. The two men returned upstairs as a car pulled up to the hi-fi shop. But this time, it wasn't an unknowing victim. It was a car that showed up to steal more equipment. The basement was now pitch black as the victims lay heaving after drinking the fiery liquid. After they were done upstairs, they returned to the basement, this time with plastic gloves. Then they robbed the victims, taking their wallets with cash and IDs, but leaving behind Carol and Michelle's jewelry. Mind you, they were wearing some pretty expensive jewelry, like a gold Rolex watch and some diamond rings. Then the two perpetrators stood at the bottom of the steps, again, whispering back and forth. They were trying to figure out what to do with the five. And it was clear as day that the tall man was too scared to do anything. The short man said, fine, fine, fine. You leave, get me 30 minutes and that's it. And then the tall man left. And the small, more evil of the pair stayed behind with the five victims. And what he did next was more cruel and inhumane than pouring fiery liquid into a living human. The short man stealthily moved around the room, almost on his tiptoes, first going to where Carol lay. Carol was softly panting as her mouth and insides were on fire. The man jostled with something in his hand until a pop went off as Carol had been executed while laying next to her son in the dark basement of the hi-fi shop. Terror now setting in deeper and deeper as the victims realized that this devilish man had no intent to let any of them live. Next, the man stepped over Carol and put the hot muzzle on the back of Courtney's head. Then Courtney heard a loud bang and everything went blank. Then the man stood over Oren, this time with more confidence on his aim and too lazy to actually put the gun on Oren and shot at Oren. Then he made his way to Stan, intentionally passing Michelle as he executed Stan. The man must have disappeared for a moment as Michelle whispered in the dark, Stan, are you alive? Stan miraculously was not dead as he gasped. I've been shot. I imagine at this point that Oren was thrilled to hear his son's voice because what the short man didn't realize, at least not initially, was that when he aimed and shot at Oren, he completely missed and Oren was uninjured. But as soon as anything else could happen, the short man returned downstairs, walked straight over to Oren and shot him in the head. But Mr. Oren wasn't dead. Although he was playing dead and forcing his brain to do math in an effort to keep himself mentally strong in this moment, he was afraid that if he let go, he might actually die. Michelle was the only one who lay there untouched. As the man walked over to her, Michelle begged for her life. At first, it seemed like her pleas were being heard. 
because the man untied her hands and her feet and allowed her to stand up. But the monster had no intent to let her go. Instead, he took her to the far corner of the basement and raped Michelle for 20 minutes. All while the four people he had just shot lay nearby motionless, some of them dead, some of them unconscious, and some of them holding on for dear life. After the man was done, he told Michelle to take her place where she was earlier, although she begged for him to take her with him. A few minutes went by when the perpetrator returned to Oren and yanked at his throat, searching for a pulse. Then the man turned towards Michelle as he pulled the trigger, shooting Michelle in the head. Then the man turned his attention to Oren yet again, this time putting a cord around Oren's neck and pulling tight, pulling, pulling, pulling. Oren was very thoughtful, though, in his own being. Oren had this will to live that is beyond all comprehension to me. As the man pulled the cord tight around Oren's neck, Gary Kinder in his book explains that Oren thoughtfully, quote, expanded only the muscles in his neck until he felt his skin tight, end quote. The man tightened and tightened the cord, but Oren had expanded his neck enough that he was still able to breathe, albeit barely. The man dropped Oren and Oren played dead. But the short man was not done with Oren, although he was out of bullets. The man then returned with a ballpoint pen. The man put the pen into Oren's ear and then he lifted his foot as he stomped the pen into Oren's ear, head, throat three times. And just like that, the man disappeared into the night, taking with him $24,000 worth of stereo equipment and a few lives. It was pitch black in the basement. The air filled with gunpowder, the lingering smell of acid fumes, and the tense smell of blood and puke. When all of a sudden, a body lifted itself from the ground and crawled towards the bottom of the stairs. Then the silence of it all was broken by the hi-fi shop doorbell located at the back of the shop. When all of a sudden, a voice from the basement yelled, call the police and get an ambulance. At about 10.30 p.m., Oren and his son had not yet returned home and Oren's wife was worried sick. So both her and her young son went to looking. When they pulled up to the hi-fi or, or the back of the hi-fi, they saw Oren's car and they rung the bell. And that's when they heard Oren hollering from the basement. Well, the young son, who was actually 16 years old, kicked down the door and made the gruesome discovery. They called the cops and the three of them, Oren, his wife and his younger son, waited outside of the hi-fi shops located at 2323 Washington Boulevard. They waited until the cops arrived. The two responding cops were Kevin Youngberg and Gail Bocut. Youngberg had been on the force but 32 days when he responded to the scene. And when they walked into the basement, it was pitch black and they used their flashlights to see down there. One of the men actually describe it like a scene out of a horror movie, except in a horror movie, it's fake and you expect everyone to just kind of get up and walk off. But this wasn't a movie, although it truly was horrific. Oren, who appeared very lucid to the police, 
didn't appear as though he had just been forced to drink acid, shot, and that he had a pen stomped into his ear. In fact, the pen was still lodged in the side of his head slash ear when the police arrived. But when the police arrived, they thought that he was just holding the pen on the top of his ear. When in fact, the pen was literally lodged in the side of his head and had even punctured his throat. How insane. Meanwhile, the news stations got wind that something big had just happened at or near the hi-fi shop and reporting began almost immediately. Byron, what the heck is going on in Ogden? Did you hear that five people were shot at your nephew's shop? Byron gulped. No, he had not heard a thing. But right then and there, he knew something terrible had happened. He threw on some clothes, went over to the shop and around back. He saw the cops and he saw his wife's car and dread just filled him entirely. He knew, but he wanted to hang on to some glimmer of hope that this was just a big misunderstanding. Once he realized that two people, a woman and a boy, had been taken to the hospital, Byron made a beeline to the hospital. He describes in Kinder's book just driving and feeling emptiness, fear, and anxiety. He wanted to magically be at the hospital, but time was somehow halted. Back at the scene, police were photographing all of the evidence and taking as much evidence as possible. They knew that the person or persons who did this was a monster and needed to be taken off the streets. At the hospital, Carol and Courtney arrived, practically dead, but the ER staff worked on them. But they were stumped by the acidy stuff in and around their mouths. Carol clearly had a hole in the back of her head, which, by the way, the bullet entered her brain right above the right ear and then split in two. When she was there, her breathing was short and sporadic, but her heart had stopped and her blood pressure was practically zero. Courtney had a tight gurgling in his chest and had a severe pulmonary edema. He wasn't expected to live. Stan and Michelle, however, were dead at the scene. Oren miraculously survived and was up and about telling cops everything he could remember. And Courtney was holding on for life. And by this point, Carol was declared dead at the hospital. She was 52 years old. Back at the hi-fi shop, homicide investigators arrived on scene. They bagged the evidence, including taking a 25 caliber cartridge and a 38 caliber slug. Their key witness, though, was Oren. He had already given them a description of the men. Two black men, one tall, one short, early 20s max. Oren also remembered that there was a van parked out back as he walked into the hi-fi shop that night. Investigator D.K. White had observed the crime scene and could only use one word to describe the scene. Savage. As a homicide investigator, there had only been one other murder in the last six months that seemed as savage as this scene. And that was the murder of a Hill Air Force Base airman named Staff Sergeant Edward Jefferson. Six months earlier, Staff Sergeant Edward Jefferson had been found dead in his off-base apartment. Someone had put a bayonet straight through his skull. Although there was a suspect in that case, another airman by the name of Dale Pierre, they could never specifically pinpoint the murder on this guy, Dale. So the case grew cold. 
But as Investigator White saw the scene at the hi-fi shop, he thought it was also savage, just like the murder of Staff Sergeant Jefferson. This time, though, Investigator White was determined to find the hi-fi murderers because whoever did this did it without remorse, and they were definitely capable of doing it again. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. The hospital staff had their hands full working on Courtney and Oren, the only two surviving victims of the hi-fi shop. By day, every news channel in Ogden and probably Utah were talking about the hi-fi murders and panic was beginning to set in. The quiet, idyllic world in which Ogden residents lived was now shattered and at least two killers were on the loose. The tactical squad, the sheriff's office, the Utah Highway Patrol, they were all on high alert and they had a blank check to do whatever it took to find the killers. And the first big break in the case came from the unlikeliest of places. Hill Air Force Base. During the afternoon of April 23rd, a few military kids, an 11-year-old and a 12-year-old, they had a thing that they liked to do after school let out. They liked to rummage through the dumpsters on base. And they were used to finding a few good knickknacks, but their main purpose was to collect all of the bottle caps and turn them in for some cold, hard cash. They did this about four days a week, and they got about 20 bucks a week. And, you know, that's not too shabby for the 70s. The kids had a routine. They hit about nine dumpsters a day, which is pretty ambitious if you ask me. Anywho, what the kiddos did was that they would take a box or a bag and they would lug it around from dumpster to dumpster. And they hit up their first dumpster, then they hit up a second, getting tons of caps on this day. Then they realized that the third dumpster had already been emptied and so they moved on to the fourth. They climbed in and began to work. And while digging, one of the boys found a woman's purse. What in the world, they thought? But when they looked inside, it was empty. So then they went back to looking for bottle caps until they found another purse. Now, this one wasn't empty. It had 11 cents and a credit card. At this point, the small little boys forgot all about their bottle caps and began to look for more purses. When they spotted a bunch of credit cards, it looked as if someone had just dumped them all in the dumpster. They also found a clutch purse containing a checkbook now, this was getting odd for the kids, so they hopped out the dumpster. The boys decided to keep the stuff to take to their moms, 
But before they left, they wanted to take another look to see what else was in there. And while they were in there, they found an ID and a student pilot license. After the boys were satisfied that they wouldn't find any more purses, they went back to searching for bottle caps. Then they decided that their box was too full and they began to drag it. Just then, a nice airman saw the boys struggling to pick up the box and he asked if they needed help. Sure thing, the boys thought. This helper was 18-year-old airman Paul Weldon. He lived in Barracks Building 351, which was right across the street from the dumpster. Now, the boys started chatterboxing about all the wallets and the cool stuff that they found in the dumpster. And the airman was curious, so he asked to see it. But the boys got real defensive, like, Mm-mm, no, no, you're going to take our stuff. Mm-mm, no, we're going to give it to our mom. Now, Airman Weldon just wanted to take a peek and see if maybe he recognized the name. So the little boys showed him the stuff and Airman Weldon asked if, you know, maybe he could take it and try and return it to its owners. You know, and after some give and take, the boys finally allowed the airman to take one purse. Then the boys went on their way as the airman searched through the purse and found a phone number. The phone number appeared to belong to the person who owned the purse. So he went to a phone booth and called the number. A woman answered and Airman Weldon stated, hello, may I please speak to Miss Michelle Ansley? The phone went silent. And then the woman said, Michelle was murdered last night. Silence. What in the world, Weldon thought as he started to stutter. Oh, oh, geez. I had no idea. I found her wallet and I was just trying to return it. At around the same time that the boys were making their rounds in dumpsters, an anonymous tip came into the police station. Someone claimed that he knew who killed the people in the hi-fi shop. Corporal Fisher was the officer on the line and he asked the tipster how he knew who did it. And the tipster said that he heard the guys talking about robbing a place and they mentioned that they weren't going to leave any witnesses. Corporal Fisher was all ears now. The caller went on to say that a few months earlier, he was doing some extra duty in the barracks because he had gotten into some sort of trouble. Of course, he was doing his extra duty with some other folks who had also gotten into trouble. He decided to hang out with this one particular airman after they were done with their duty. And when the tipster went to this guy's room, he had some pretty neat stereo equipment. The guy mentioned that he got the stereo equipment from a friend. Then the pair started talking about money and the guy had mentioned that he was planning to rob a bank. But then he backed out. But he said that he eventually planned to rob a hi-fi shop and he planned to kill anyone who got in his way. What the what? Hmm. Corporal Fisher wanted names and he got them. William Andrews was the guy who was doing extra duty and his friend who had allegedly got him the equipment was Dale Pierre. Corporal Fisher asked where he could find these guys and the tipster said, here on base, they live in barracks building 351. Meanwhile, the Office of Special Investigations was calling the local PD to inform them that they had heard from Airman Weldon about the wallets discovered in a dumpster near Barracks Building 351. Now, a light bulb came on for one of the cops when he heard Barracks 351 because in January, he was at Barracks 351 for a stolen car situation. And then a few more times that same week in January, he was there again, all to arrest the same airman. Now, this airman had an interesting trick that he used to rip off car dealerships. 
As reported by Gary Kinder, on January 23, 1974, an airman went to a used car lot and took a yellow 1973 Corvette for a test drive. Then he returned it to the dealership and went home. Later that night, the airman returned to the dealership to steal it from the lot. And in the morning, when the dealer opened up shop, he discovered the car was stolen. Just then, the airman from the night earlier showed up at the dealership saying that he had thought it over and he wanted to purchase the Corvette. Sadly, he'd be told that the Corvette was no longer available because it was stolen. Now, the airman would get real irate and disgusted by the situation. Well, on this particular occasion, a policeman showed up because a car had been reported stolen and he noticed the airman kind of causing a ruckus. He noticed the green car that this airman had been driving. Something about the car seemed off. And when the cop ran the VIN number, an alert popped up. The car was stolen. Okay, so who drives a stolen car to the dealership where they had just stolen a different car? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Well, a search of the car, the green car, revealed a loaded gun. And so the airman was arrested and booked. But a week later, he made bail. And no kidding, within a few days of his release, the yellow Corvette appeared parked outside, you guessed it, Barracks Building 351. But it wasn't just the Corvette. Another stolen car appeared as well. So again, the airman was arrested, but this time he spent about six weeks behind bars until he was released on bail on March 20th, pending a future trial. A cop was already en route to check out the situation with the dumpster and the wallet when the lead detective got wind about the wallets found near Barracks Building 351 and the connection to Dale Pierre, the airman who was pending car theft charges and gun charges. So Dale Pierre was the guy with the stolen yellow Corvette. All right. The cops arrived on scene and when they saw the dumpster and its contents, including various belongings to the hi-fi victims, they began to bag it. But as they bagged it, they were well aware of their surroundings. The barracks overlooked the dumpster, but there was one window in particular where something was off. One of the detectives had Pierre's name and William's name, and they went to talk to the first sergeant to gauge more information about these two dudes' appearances. Remember, Oren Walker, the main witness, didn't know the perpetrators' names. He just knew that there was a tall one and a short one, and they were both African-American. The small one had a thick accent of sorts and he had a little, he had like a bubble butt that created a distinct walk. The first sergeant, James Stevens, walked in and was like, what's this about? He was told about the murders and told about a tip that came in about Dale Pierre and William Andrews. And Stephen was like, wait, what? Dale Pierre? You think Dale Pierre killed a few folks downtown? Yup. If he did, I'm not even one bit surprised. I knew he had it in him. Dale and William were both part of the 1550th Organizational Maintenance Squadron. They maintained helicopters. Anyway, Stevens was probably patting himself on the back when he heard the cops, not because he wanted to be right, but because Stevens had been telling the commander for months that Dale Pierre was no bueno. Bad news, in fact. And the commander, Colonel John Newbuyer, knew that Stevens was right. They were both convinced that Dale had actually killed Staff Sergeant Edward Jefferson, but there was no hard evidence. 
And besides that, it wasn't until the car theft issues in January that the command had any information worthy of a discharge from the military. Because for those of you who don't know, in the military, you cannot just be fired today and on an airplane home tomorrow, unless maybe you're at boot camp. You know, for minor stuff, the commander has to give you another chance and another chance and sometimes multiple chances. And then once those rehabilitative attempts have failed, then they can give you the boot. But that is a process and it takes at minimum three weeks to at least a month, but sometimes a little bit longer. And if you're a non-commissioned officer or someone with certain amount of time in the military, then the process can take upwards of four months to six months or sometimes even a year. Well, while Dale was in jail for six weeks, the 1550th OMS commander worked rapidly to discharge Dale. But as soon as he made bail, Dale asked to get out of the military, citing an inability to adjust to military life. But if the commander approved this, this discharge would be honorable. Now, the commander had to weigh the prospect of having Dale around for a few more months pending a less honorable discharge, usually a general, because, you know, the commander was waiting on the civilian car theft trial to take place. Or the commander could, you know, separate Dale right now for adjustment issues. But the only downfall was giving him an honorable, but it was a quicker solution. Two days after Dale requested separation, so did William. And it was the commander's decision to pull these men off their regular duties on the flight line that would bring Dale and Williams together as they were stuck cleaning the dorms awaiting their discharge. But the two men were two peas in a pod. Because after they failed to report to work on time, they were both given Article 15s where the commander took their rank, reducing them all the way down to E1, which is Airman Basic. And guess what? Surprisingly, on the night of the Hi-Fi murders, both men, Dale and William, should have been performing janitorial duties in the barracks. And surprise, surprise, neither of them showed up. I imagine at this point, the cops and detectives have their notepads and their brains are spinning. A murderer in the Air Force? A murderer who was about to be processed for an honorable discharge? The civilian authorities were ginning up arrest warrants for the two airmen. But in the meantime, they were hoping to get the wing commander's help with surveilling the barracks and not allowing the two suspects to leave. But the wing commander was all types of squirmy and he didn't feel that he had the authority to do that absent a civilian arrest warrant. And just like that, as the civilians prepped the arrest warrant for two extremely dangerous perpetrators, the two wanted men left their barracks, jumped into their car and left the base. What? They were gone. They were gone. But sometime later, they returned to the barracks. And this was when they were both taken into custody. When questioned, William told the officer that the night of the murders, him, Dale and Airman Keith Roberts went off base and drove around a bit and dropped Keith off somewhere. Then him and Dale caught a movie at the base theater and then went to a 7-Eleven for some beers and they were both in bed by midnight. When confronted with the fact that they had seen the movie On Sunday night, not Monday night, Williams was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We saw the movie two nights in a row. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Insert, you know, that head slap emoji. You can insert that right here. William also independently opined that they should not be surprised if his fingerprints were found at the hi-fi shop because he said that he had been there a week earlier 
and he had touched every single item in the store. (laughs) Oh boy. Now, if there was like a double head slap emoji, I would insert that right here because that's just who, who goes into a store and touches every single thing anyway. When Dale was interviewed, Dale didn't say a word. He was just polite, but didn't speak much. Of course, as soon as the men were arrested, their dorm rooms were swarmed with detectives looking for any connection to Hi-Fi. But really, they were looking for the $24,000 worth of equipment. First up was Dale's room. And after searching the room five times and tearing the thing apart, the only thing that they found was a stereo equipment brochure, which listed Hi-Fi Shop as a place to get all of the cool stuff. Next was William's room, and his room revealed more. They found surgical gloves and several clear plastic album covers with the Hi-Fi logo. They continued to look and decided to start pulling the carpet up, and this would lead them to a white envelope a contract between Dale and a local storage unit. The rental agreement was signed on Monday, April 22nd, the day of the Hi-Fi murders. Jackpot. The detectives wasted no time before heading over to the storage unit, cutting the lock and discovering, you guessed it, all of the stolen stereo equipment. Nestled in the shed was a large bottle of Drano and a green cup. Dale and William had been charged with murder, attempted murder, robbery, and a slew of other crimes, and all of their friends and co-workers were making their rounds being interviewed. One in particular stood out, Keith Roberts, Airman Keith Roberts. By this point, many witnesses had been interviewed about what they saw at or near the hi-fi shop on the day and night of the murder. It was becoming clear to detectives that there was a third man involved, and that man appeared to be Keith Roberts. He was taken into custody for carrying a concealed weapon, but by the end of all of the interviews, especially the ones indicating that he was the one driving the blue van that dropped Dale and William off near the shop, and there was also an eyewitness who recalled seeing him in the alley behind Hi-Fi between 7 and 9 p.m. on the night of the murders. Well, the charges against Keith were upgraded to aggravated robbery and first-degree murder. The state was seeking the death penalty in all three cases. Let me tell you a little bit about the only suspect that I have any information on uh, because there's just not enough information on William and Keith. So let me tell you a little bit about Dale. Dale Pierre was the short man during my telling of the horror experience in the hi-fi basement on April 22nd. Dale was born on January 21st, 1953 on the island of Tobago, but raised in Trinidad. He came from a big family, seven siblings in all. After his arrest, Dale told the shrink that at the age of 16, he was in a traumatic motorcycle accident, requiring 25 stitches on his head. He was in the hospital for roughly two months, and although he claimed he didn't suffer too much afterwards, he did experience a few short blackouts a week. Eventually, at the age of 17, Dale relocated to Brooklyn, New York. Apparently, he ended up doing about three and a half years of college back in Trinidad, but he was not a good student. He did a few months at Long Island University, and he worked with the Children's Service Department in New York for about a year before taking the plunge and joining the Air Force in 1973. After meeting with a shrink, the shrink opined that Dale suffered from a sense of inferiority. Investigators did reveal that Dale was also a liar, or at minimum, an exaggerator. That motorcycle accident I just told you about, well, it was actually a bicycle accident, 
And although he did receive stitches, he never complained of any blackouts to his doctor. And remember all the schooling he said that he received? Yup, all a crock of poop. Although it is believed that more people than just Dale, William, and Keith were involved in at least the robbery part of the hi-fi, no one else has ever been implicated in the hi-fi murders or the robbery. The trial against the three men began on October 15, 1974, and lasted about a month, and it was a combined trial for all three. Oh, and because of how notorious the hi-fi murders had become, the trial had to be changed to a different city in an effort to give the defendants a fair trial. Dale, William, and Keith were charged with three counts of first-degree capital murder and two counts of aggravated robbery. The evidence in the case was overwhelming. Oren Walker testified to the vivid details that I have already discussed earlier. He also made it clear that William did leave before the executions and rape took place, although he did say that William was there for the Drano. Oren also identified Dale and William as the men in the basement, and he did indicate he never saw Keith. Sadly, the only other eyewitness to the brutality that occurred on April 22, 1974, did not testify. Courtney Nesbitt did not testify because he suffered amnesia. The hi-fi murder trial took place only six months after the murders, and at this point, Courtney was still in the hospital. If you get a chance to read the book, Victim, that I've been mentioning throughout this whole story... I'd highly suggest it. It describes in painstaking detail the recovery process for Courtney, how he couldn't comprehend that his mother was dead and how his family coped with the tragic murder that stole their matriarch and changed the trajectory of their family's lives forever. I mean, Courtney surviving was truly a miracle. At trial, evidence was presented that Dale and William had given stereo equipment to a female to hold. That stereo equipment was later discovered to be stolen goods from Hi-Fi. Remember the Drano, a.k.a. the acid? Well, Dale argued that he got the idea for the Drano as he was using the bathroom that day and that it was not, in fact, planned. But evidence was presented that three weeks prior to the murders, Dale and William had seen a movie in theaters called Magnum Force. In this movie, there was a scene where a pimp poured Drano down a prostitute's throat to kill her. But we all know that life is never like the movies. So I imagine that if Dale did in fact take this from that movie, he was upset to find out that people don't necessarily die instantly from drinking Drano. Keith, one of the perpetrators, testified against the other two. He testified that on the day of the murders, he had two wisdom teeth pulled out in the morning. That afternoon, he went back to the dentist for more pain meds. He returned to his room, took the pills, and was out cold until about 4 p.m. when Dale and William came to get him. According to Keith, he was allegedly able to drive, even though he was on pain meds, and he drove the threesome through Ogden looking for an apartment for Keith, his wife, and their new baby. After a little bit, though, the pain meds began to make Keith queasy, so he had to switch and he couldn't drive any longer. Well, then they went into downtown Ogden, Dale and William got out, but Keith stayed in the car because he was in pain or something. And after a while, he left the keys in the van and walked to a friend's house. He alleged that he arrived at his friend's house at about 7 p.m. and passed out, which meant he was asleep during the murders. But this testimony was later disputed when a witness said they saw Keith outside the hi-fi shop between 7 and 9 p.m. 
Keith's fingerprints were found on the door to the storage unit where all of the equipment was later discovered. And a part of the gun bolt and Drano drippage, I guess, were also discovered in Keith's car. One more big piece of evidence was an eyewitness who saw the guys at the hi-fi shop two nights before the murder, pricing out all of the equipment. Overall, the prosecution called 66 witnesses and entered over 300 exhibits of physical evidence. I don't need to rehash what the evidence was. And so on November 15, 1974, Dale and William were convicted of all charges and sentenced to death. The jury, however, could not come to a conclusion about Keith's involvement in the actual murders. So he was convicted for the robberies, but acquitted of the murder charges. Keith received five years to life. For many, the death penalty was justified, but for others, it was too harsh a punishment involving African-American perpetrators. In 1987, after serving a little over 13 years for his role in the hi-fi robbery, Keith Roberts was paroled. His parole officer told a reporter that Keith was a model prisoner. In fact, by 1989, he was at the point where he didn't even have to show up for his parole appointments. He just had to fill out a form and mail it in. Oh, and real quick, even though at trial, remember, Keith downplayed his role, saying that he was out of it because of his dental appointment, whatever. Keith later told the parole board that he knew the plan was to rob the hi-fi shop and he was really excited to participate. However, he did become sick and that's when he abandoned the plan. Ironically, while reading an article written by Jerry Spangler, I discovered that Keith wound up working at an electronics company in Oklahoma City after he was released from jail. Isn't that bizarre? I wonder if they knew what he had actually done. I don't know. I don't know what reporting was like back then. In 1987, Dale petitioned for a commutation. I'm assuming that he was asking to set aside his death sentence instead opting for life without parole. Dale admitted to the murders, but said his intent was to go to the hi-fi shop to rob, not murder. He said he was high on Valium, beer, and marijuana at the time of the murders. He said that he was set off by something that Carol told him. But his request was denied, and he was executed in August of 1987. He was 34 years old. William's petitions went on for five more years. And here is a clip that I found from William during those years. Anyone as human would have remorse for what happened. I'm very ashamed of my participation in that crime. I feel a lot of remorse for uh, the victims and the family of the victims. After all of his appeals and last minute requests, he was ultimately executed in July of 1992. Many still outraged because he didn't even pull the trigger. He was 37 years old at the time of his execution. Keith apparently also passed away in 1992, although I don't know how he died. Courtney eventually got out of the hospital, but it was an uphill battle. His throat was so jacked up from the Drano that initially the only way he could nourish his body was through formula and liquid food poured through a tube. And in the book, Victim, I read about how awfully difficult it was to get Courtney to pour anything into his throat because he just kept screaming, imagining the Drano being poured down his throat. He eventually got what I'm going to call an esophagus transplant, although I'm not sure if that's what it's called. 
but the doctors cut out Courtney's old esophagus, brought a severed piece of colon up and attached it below his throat and to his old esophagus, leading to his stomach. Talk about traumatic. Eight years after the murders, the hi-fi shop was torn down as part of a renovation project in downtown Ogden. Byron Nesbitt, Carol's husband and Courtney's dad, eventually remarried. A year after leaving the hospital, Courtney married a woman he had become pen pals with while in the hospital. Orrin Walker died in 2000. Courtney died in 2002, likely of complications he had to endure for the remainder of his life. Byron Nesbitt died in 2012. Throughout the book, Victim, Byron was very optimistic about life, even though he always missed his wife and wished that his son didn't have to go through this. Gary Kinder was an amazing writer. He wrote the book Victim, and it was a true crime book. But the book focused on the victims and telling their story and the story of the survivors. After he wrote the book, a reader wrote him a letter, and it was lengthy. But I do appreciate the quote, and I think that it might resonate with victims out there and maybe some of us true crime loving souls quote i'd like to thank you for writing victim and saying for so many of us that who we are and what happens to us is important too because we survive the rest of the world seems to be of the opinion that we're miracles of strength however we are just people people who break in the midst of our own survival we are due help and respect and sensitivity to our plight we need to be heard we need to feel safe, which only comes from being heard, end quote. If I tell you I cried five times while reading Gary Kinder's book, Victim, I'd be absolutely lying because it was much more than that. Thank you, True Crime Army, for allowing me to take you back to 1974 to tell you this military murder tale of murder, survival and justice. Before I sign off, just a reminder that if you are interested in monthly bonus content and ad free listening, check out the Patreon fan club page. The October bonus episode is connected to Hill Air Force Base and the murder of Staff Sergeant Edward Jefferson, who I mentioned earlier in this episode. So you're not going to want to miss out this month. Also, make sure that you're following me on social where I often post stories, take polls, and share a little bit about myself. Find me on social on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast and on Facebook at Military True Crime. I just wanted to say thanks to all of my patrons. I love you. Okay, so I just want to shout everyone out. Here are my dotted line supporters. Thank you to Jasmine P, Dawn B, Michelle K, Christina C, Amanda M, Amanda B M, Crystal G, Z H, Lizzie M, Shanna M, Jessica M, Chantel C, Portia C, Amber F, and Kristen R. All right. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with my boot camp and higher fan club members. So here are my assistant producers. They are Melissa C, Katie K, Megan T, and Rose AB. My associate producers are Velma H, Nicole G, Latoya B, Megan W, Bob H, Lynn R, Lauren C, Crystal LB, Jenny M, Jacqueline B, Stacy M, Felicia R, Lynn M H. And the executive producer for Military Murder is Falcon 13. Thank you so much, supporters and producers. You all rock. And as always, the music was created by Tyops. 
Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Podcast.